You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, over the years, we've taken on the role of protecting the federal holiday of Christmas. As you know, there are some Americans who are offended by any reference to Jesus Christ. And that's what the USA celebrates on December 25th, the birth of the baby Jesus. Yeah, it's the war on the Christmas season season. When was the last time you thought about the war on Christmas? I'm hoping it's been a while, for your own sake, that you've comforted yourself, lulled yourself even, into thinking we've shaken free of this, the most ridiculously knotted and gnarly branch of the Fox News culture war Christmas tree. But you're mistaken, my friend. The war on Christmas is still very much alive. Last night, the first shots were fired in the war on Christmas in a small town called Dedham, Massachusetts. Librarian Amber Maroney killed their annual Christmas tree because it makes some people feel uncomfortable. Now, I haven't exactly gone fool killer deep on the case of the missing Endicott Library Christmas tree, but I've spent more time than a healthy person with their whole life ahead of them should, and I can't tell what's going on here. The whole story appears to go back to a single Facebook post claiming that the tree was being banned this holiday season. When Jesse Waters says, Today, Primetime got a picture of the Christmas tree that was used for the past several years. What he really means to say is that they copy-pasted the photo that was attached to that Facebook post. Killer journalism there, Jesse. Yet, compared to some of the stories out there about the Endicott Library Christmas tree, Jesse Waters looks like a regular Woodward and Bernstein. The New York Post has an article on the subject, and their main source for their newspaper article is... Jesse Waters, whose bit of evening punditry they cite as confirmation of the story. That's flabbergastingly bad reporting, even before you recall that The Post and Fox News share the same owner. Later in The Post's piece, they quote library supervisor Lisa Desmond as saying, she was told that when people walked in that room, it made them uncomfortable. And you might, for a Pollyanna-ish moment, think, oh, well, at least they interviewed someone. But they didn't. The Post claims that the quote comes from an interview Desmond gave to WBZ News Radio, which would be fine, except that if you hop on over to WBZ News Radio, you'll quickly surmise that they didn't interview library supervisor Lisa Desmond either. In fact, they are just quoting from her Facebook post because Lisa is the one that wrote the post that kicked this whole hornet's nest over. 
There are dozens of articles out there about this Christmas tree ban, and none of them are better sourced than this. Whether weird little blogs and YouTube channels or national daily newspapers and cable news networks, they're all predicated expressly and solely upon a Facebook post. Which might lead one, naturally, to shift their eyes back and forth slowly before quietly sidling closer to the microphone to ask, Is there a Christmas tree? at the Endicott Public Library? I'm not sure, but I suspect the answer is yes, and not just because these sorts of war on Christmas stories have a bad track record with the truth. Good morning, everybody. Live from Studio M, it is Wednesday, December 8, 2021. Normally during the Christmas season, we start the program by showing an outside shot of our all-American Christmas tree on Fox Square, Last year, for instance, a man climbed over a barricade and set fire to the Christmas tree in front of 1211 Avenue of the Americas in Manhattan, the headquarters of Fox News itself. This sent the network into a days-long fit of auto-martyrdom. It's beginning to look a lot like arson. Right now there is somebody who is in custody and is being interviewed by local police. Who sets a Christmas tree on fire? Who sets a Christmas Well, I mean, it's just part of the rampage. No city is safe. No person is safe from the subway on down. Here you are at 48th and 6th, right in midtown Manhattan. Uh, The war on Christmas had come home. The liberals and secularists weren't content to attack nativity scenes in Fairfax anymore. They were coming straight to the doorstep of Fox and Friends themselves, and they weren't going to take it. It's beginning to look a lot like arson. You already used that line, Ducey. Is it so much to ask that you at least invent a second quip? Here, I'll do it right now. Jack Frost may be nipping at your nose and choirs are singing yuletide carols, but those aren't chestnuts roasting. It's the spirit of Christmas itself, burnt to cinders today by the hearth-darkening Krampus we call Joe Biden. See, it's easy. It turned out, because of course it fucking did, that last year's Fox News Christmas tree arsonist was not, in fact, a raging secularist foot soldier in America's longest running forever war, but a mentally ill and unhoused loner. A development which Fox reported dutifully, but with a scoffing harumph, as if to say, but we know why he really did it. Right, folks? If I had to put money on the table... I would bet that this year's Christmas tree-free library also turns out to be a misunderstanding, if not an outright lie. It wouldn't be a fair bet, given that the one direct source I found not related to an angry Facebook post comes from a statement made by the town of Dedham in the midst of an uproar which predictably has led to library workers and volunteers receiving threats and harassment. The beginning of that statement reads... The town of Dedham stands in support of all town staff targeted by recent online threats and bullying. Unfortunately, a recent social media post expressing disagreement with the decision to display a holiday tree at the library has quickly evolved into a polarized environment and has led to the harassment and bullying of town employees. We wholeheartedly condemn this behavior as it tears at the fabric of our community and cannot be tolerated expressing disagreement with the decision to display a holiday tree at the library. Hmm, that's a telling turn of phrase. Could it be, possibly, that this whole hubbub isn't about whether the library has a tree, but about what they call it? (laughs) Nah, that would be absurd, right? 
Yes, it would. And I'm not saying that's what's happening here. I honestly and for real can't tell whether this small town Massachusetts library has a tree up or not. Who cares? Despite an endless cascade of quote unquote reporting on the story. But that distinction between the word Christmas and the word holiday Well, that is at the root of the war on Christmas. That's the Cassis belly. The change from wishing fellow Americans Merry Christmas to wishing them Happy Holidays is a very significant development. Prager U is what happens when you decide to publicly post your Andy Rooney audition tapes and call them educational. And Dennis Prager is forever beating the holiday versus Christmas drum over on his channel. Is all this elimination of the word Christmas important or not? The answer is obvious. It's very important. That's why so much effort is devoted to substituting other words for Christmas. And these efforts have been extraordinarily successful. In place of the universal Merry Christmas of my youth, in recent decades I have been wished Happy Holidays by every waiter and waitress in every restaurant I have dined, by everyone who welcomes me at any business, by my flight attendants and pilots, and by just about everyone else. When I respond, thank you, Merry Christmas. I often sense that I've actually created some tension. It's actually fairly depressing to realize that Dennis Prager is injecting so much meaning and subtext into two-line exchanges with flight attendants and retail workers who surely have already locked eyes with their next customer before he could finish his sentence. It makes you wonder how deep his loneliness goes, if anything can be done about it. If we can give Dennis Prager the love he needs this holiday season. Many of those I wish Merry Christmas are probably relieved to hear someone who feels free to utter the C word. Ugh, maybe next year. As Harris Brewis, a.k.a. H. Bomber Guy, pointed out a few years back in his War on Christmas Measured Response video, Prager seems to think he's found a particularly clever checkmate in a piece of Christmas trivia. That's why it's not surprising that it was an American Jew, Irving Berlin, who wrote White Christmas, one of America's most popular Christmas songs. In fact, according to a Jewish musician writing in the New York Times, almost all the most popular Christmas songs were written by Jews. He brings it up year after year. You'd be forgiven for wondering if Dennis Prager knows anything else about this hip Irving Berlin fellow the kids are all talking about. Like, for instance why he wrote White Christmas. Mom, Dad, are you listening? I know you know. Call it out. White Christmas is the 11 o'clock number for Berlin's 1942 Paramount Pictures feature Holiday Inn, starring Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, Marjorie Reynolds, and Virginia Dale. Skipping past the convoluted and perfunctory setup, not to mention the blackface, Holiday Inn is about a Connecticut resort that's only open on holidays, when it performs big, seasonally appropriate acts for all comers. Aside from White Christmas, the other big hit to come out of Holiday Inn was... I'm singing a song of freedom. That's right, Song of Freedom. No, wait, that's not what I... Happy Holiday. Yeah, that one, Happy Holiday. The same exact fucking phrase Dennis Prager is so bent about is the title number of the movie that gave us White Christmas, which, did you know, was written by an American Jew? There's no way that Prager doesn't know this, right? Happy Holiday is definitely right up there with White Christmas as far as seasonal songs go. And not only are they written by the same guy, they're sung by the same guy, too, in the same movie. 
Yet somehow, Prager never heard the phrase until those darn secularists came around with their nefarious plot to take the Christ out of Christmas. Oh, God. I promised myself to not go on about this stuff for this long. If you want to hear people prosecute the war on Christmas, there's no shortage of places you can do that. And I think we should be wary of it. Because the urge to dunk on the Dennis Pragers of the world is too seductive. It fits too neatly into the pattern, too. Every year, somebody has to top off the war on Christmas outrage, whether it's Alex Jones running around Austin screaming at random people on the street, or Father War on Christmas himself, Bill O'Reilly, falsely claiming that schools are keeping bands from playing Christmas songs. Whatever it is, it seems like these tantrums are made as much for mockery as they are for real outrage. The contemporary war on Christmas, oh, that's an intriguing phrase, maybe we should get back to that soon, huh? The contemporary War on Christmas is typically said to have begun in 2004, when Bill O'Reilly went on a rant, which was what Bill O'Reilly did five nights a week back in 2004. Sometimes those rants just filled the space from opening to act break, but occasionally one would really hit. There was no way to know, really, which would be which. When O'Reilly took to the camera on December 7th, he might have thought his tirade about Macy's saying happy holidays and New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg unveiling a holiday tree would be just another stocking stuffer. A time killer good enough to keep millions of addled eyeballs on him until the next colostomy bag commercial came on. But it hit big. And it hit big with two people in particular. One was Rupert Murdoch, the CEO of Fox Owner News Corp, who not only saw something saleable in O'Reilly's Christmas barrage, but evidently really believed in it, too. The other person was Jon Stewart. Central's World News Headquarters in New York. This is The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Year after year and night after night, Jon Stewart's Daily Show soaked up every last bit of you'll gotta be kidding me on offer at Fox and transubstantiated it messianically into comedy gold fit for 20-something college liberals like myself. His bits on the war on Christmas mostly hold up, even all these years later. But there is something unnervingly reciprocal about it all. And finally, tonight, Pinners of Patriots, as you may know, Jon Stewart and I are going back and forth over the war on Christmas. There were a few times when Stewart took a shot at O'Reilly. A couple of nights ago, I responded to the ginned up outrage uh, many Christmas celebrants feel when they are unable to celebrate Christmas at all times, in all places. Last night, one of Santa's unusually large elves fired back. Which O'Reilly clipped back on his show. Our pal John Stewart is following the various Christmas controversies very closely. Now, there is no question that Mr. Stewart is going to hell. Which Stewart then clipped back on his show. I know. And so on and so forth. But here's where you and your minions don't understand, O'Reilly. Your hell doesn't scare me. (laughs) I make my living watching Fox News eight hours a day. (laughs) I'm already in hell. After a while, it starts to look like kayfabe. Like they're both playing a game. They're both in on the joke, and the punchline is just keeping their respective groundlings happy and watching. Of course, Stewart's a comedian. It makes sense for him to be in on the joke. Why shouldn't he be? Except that Jon Stewart understood he had a moral obligation with his show, too. And I don't know. If he knew then that his magnification of this war on Christmas lunacy would have real consequences that made the world not more irreverent but less livable, 
I think that would have given him pause. Yeah, that's what I think, that the war on Christmas has made the world worse in a way that I don't think Stuart or I or much of anyone could have anticipated, not even Bill O'Reilly. The vision of the war on Christmas he offered was so inchoate, so directionless. It was like a bomb in an open field, sound and fury. When O'Reilly was king at Fox News, it was hard to imagine a more toxic and cancerous voice. But from the present looking back, he seems almost harmless. Yes, he is full of rage and racism and bigotry and nationalism and misogyny, but it's also veiled and diffuse. His rants are spasmodic. They don't have a purpose, or at least they don't seem to understand the purpose that they do have. It's just spittle-flecked, angry uncle griping. Since his star dimmed and was then squashed out by the least surprising sexual assault allegations since Caligula, Fox has replaced O'Reilly with a series of less and less talented and less and less charismatic figures, as if to prove that the only thing that matters is the chair, not who sits in it. Currently, Tucker Carlson, an airport duty-free Brooks Brothers store that was brought to life by a magical racist fairy, sits atop the throne. Carlson had once been deemed too boring for PBS, so turning him into a star really does feel like Rupert Murdoch sending a message to every suit in Lower Manhattan that he giveth and taketh away at a whim. That Jesse Waters, a somehow even less compelling person and face than Carlson, is already waiting in the wings is yet another sign. The Metatron is the voice of God, and the body but its mouth. But that thing that O'Reilly first put to words in 2004 about Christ being scrubbed out of Christmas by liberals and secularists and academics and bureaucrats and, let's be honest here, Jews, has been honed to a finer point over the last 18 years. The Fox News Christmas tree fire was a laughably on-the-nose story for their own self-centered sense of victimhood. But it was also pitch perfect for a network that at the time was spending literally hours a day talking about how New York City had been transformed into a crime-ridden hellhole. Alex Jones has managed to aim his war on Christmas vitriol at all manner of his usual boogeymen, explicitly blaming Muslims and Asians writ large for the conspiracy. And this year's brouhaha in Dedham, Massachusetts? Probably not a coincidence that the current front line of the war on Christmas is being fought at the already bloody culture war battlefield of public libraries, which have been pounded by anti-LGBTQ propaganda and bomb threats for the last two years. In fact, a lot of the stories about Endicott Library make the connection text. Turtle Boy Daily News, I refuse to look any further into who or what that is, and I urge you to do likewise, because whatever it is, it ain't gonna be pretty. Turtle Boy Daily News reports the same tattered and regurgitated story about the Facebook post and the missing Christmas tree before immediately jumping tracks to speculate about what kind of grooming materials the Endicott Library might have on its shelves. Pretty fucking sickening, Turtle Boy. Also, your website is ugly as hell. And, as far as I can tell, the first person to successfully draw work out of the heat of the war on Christmas was this fucking guy. You know, we're getting near that beautiful Christmas season that people don't talk about anymore. <laughs> they don't use the word Christmas because it's not politically correct. You go to department stores and they'll say Happy New Year and they'll say other things and it'll be red. They'll have it painted, but they don't say, well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. <laughs> who made 
you're going to be able to say Merry Christmas again, a key plank of his 2016 campaign for president. When was the last time you saw Merry Christmas? You don't see it anymore. They want to be politically correct. If I'm president, you're going to see Merry Christmas in department stores. Believe me. Believe me. And then made having supposedly delivered on that promise a part of his re-election campaign with this ad of people thanking Trump for all he did for them. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you. Everyday Americans are standing up to thank President Trump thank you so much, for sir. making America great again. As veterans, thank you for reminding us to stand for our national anthem. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, President Trump, for letting us say Merry Christmas again. Aw, what a cutie. Shame about your upbringing, kid. Happy holidays. Oh, would you believe this cold open is now twice the length it was when I previously chided myself for going on too long? And why? I know there's a portion of you who grin and bear it whenever this show swerves towards contemporary politics. There's another portion who's like that, but with less grinning. (laughs) And another that's straight out of bearing. So, sorry to all of y'all. But this war on Christmas phenomenon isn't just highly dunkable. And it is highly dunkable. Oh, Jon Stewart, I have tasted your wine now, and it is sweet and powerful drink. I think it's also clear that there's really something happening here. That while the war on Christmas might look like hallucinogenic fantasy to most people, myself included, it can't be only that. The idea is so powerful and tenacious that I think it's worth trying to figure out what precisely it is, where it comes from, and how old it really is. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This week, we're waging war. The War on Christmas. Oh my God, are we going to have to go to ad break already? Somebody rein me in. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The full story of the war on Christmas doesn't begin with Bill O'Reilly. Instead, it starts with another man who wished he could be a great writer. But unlike O'Reilly, John Taylor was at least a very good writer. And he was one fascinating character. We don't know a lot about John Taylor's early life, and we know literally nothing about his parents, not even their names, because those records were destroyed. We do know he was born in Gloucester on August 24th, 1578, though, and we can be pretty confident that whatever his parentage, it was less than auspicious. He did attend elementary school in Gloucester, at least for a while, but he never finished and left by the early 1590s. This might have been because his unknown parents couldn't afford to school him any longer, but his biographer, Professor Bernard Cap, has also hypothesized that he might have flunked out after failing Latin. Either way, when he was a young teen, he moved from Gloucester to South London, where he took on an apprenticeship in the occupation that would dominate the rest of his life, Waterman. Watermen were the taxi drivers of 16th and 17th century London. They were oarsmen, or scullers, who ferried people up, down, and most vitally, across the River Thames. Like taxi drivers, watermen were not necessarily the most liked people in London. They had a reputation for being loud and drunk, talking passengers' ears off with their offensive, ignorant, and uninvited opinions. You had to be savvy with your watermen, or else they could fast-talk you into some extraneous fee or berate you for a tip. Or a waterman could be charming, interesting, funny, a good conversationalist who made the journey as rewarding as the destination. Case in point, John Taylor who, after his apprenticeship and a brief time in the Navy, became known as one of the wittiest and most pleasant watermen in town. Now, as I said, the lion's share of waterman work was taking people across the river. There was only one bridge, London Bridge, that crossed from the north to the south bank, which meant anyone who couldn't or didn't want to brave the lumbering crowds of the city's largest shopping district needed to hire a barge. A very large portion of those people were traveling to the South Bank to visit the city's theaters. Not just attendees, but the actors, artists, and writers of Elizabethan London. A somewhat prestigious group of folks who included little-known who's-its like Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd, Ben Johnson, and old Billy Shakes himself. John Taylor got to know these luminaries as he ferried them to the Globe Theater day after day and week after week. He doesn't seem to have been friends with Shakespeare himself, but he did grow somewhat close to Ben Jonson, and he came to admire them all, particularly John Donne, whom Taylor correctly counted as the greatest poet of the age. While not even Jonson would have called Taylor a dear friend, all of these literary masters did know him. They had ridden in his boat, and on the short journey across the Thames, he had charmed each of them. He'd proved, to himself at least, that there was no reason he couldn't join their ranks and become a great writer. No meritocratic reason, at least. John Taylor wasn't stupid, and he wasn't deluded either. He understood that he didn't have the education or the standing in society usually required to succeed as a writer. And he understood that most of the time, making money from writing required that you either knew a rich person who could pay you for it, or, failing that, that you be a rich person who didn't mind not getting paid. 
Without the proper breeding, learning, and cash flow, there was only one known path to making a career at writing available, that of the balladeer, a writer and seller of short little rhymes, pithy jokes, sappy love songs, and other such treacle. John Taylor had no taste for that, though. He wasn't interested in writing to get by. He wanted to write for greatness. Was John Donne going to stand by London Bridge barking out, Poems! Poems for sale! as the rabble perused the latest hats? Well, then neither would he. Taylor would just have to cut his own path, a new path, and invent a profession that would allow him to follow his dream. He would never be able to put down his oars, but that itself would be his gimmick. People laughed at the waterman, but just wait until they saw the world's first water poet. The title of his first work, published in 1612, is one of the cleverest turns of phrase he ever wrought. It's called The Sculler, which was both what he was and very close to what he wanted to be. A scholar. Almost a scholar, ever an oarsman. The Sculler was a big success. In spite of being a self-described hodgepodge of random musings, poems, satires, and pastorals with no unifying principle, and not an especially large bit of underlying quality, the hook of a ferryman author and the natural charms of John Taylor were enough to push it into the 17th century equivalent of the New York Times bestseller list. The opening pages of The Sculler are a near-endless litany of small poems on the subject of the book itself. In some, Taylor thanks his supporters, in others he derides his detractors, and in others he preemptively defends himself from the barbs he imagines the critics will throw his way. For instance, he writes, There is a crew of ever-carping spirits who merit nothing good, yet hate good merits rings his laws awry, and then cries mew, and that I stole my lines plainly shew. Thou addle-headed ass, thy brains are muddy, thy witless wit incapable of study, deemst each invention barren like to thine, and when thou canst not mend, thou wilt repine. Lo thus to wavering censure's torturing rack, with truth and confidence my muse doth pack. Let Zoilus and let Momus do their worst, let envy and detraction swell and burst. In spite of spite, your worthy favorites of wisdom's lore, only your favors doth my muse implore. If your good stomachs these harsh lines digest, I care less bid a rush for all the rest. My lines, fine parents, be they good or ill, was my unlearned brain and barren quill. It's not spectacular, but it's not unclever either, and Taylor understands his handicap well and turns it to his advantage. Remember, he says to those who might find fault with his work, this is what I am able to do as a simple, uneducated waterman. Imagine how much ass I'd kick if I had all your haughty advantages. To which I say, fuck yeah, John Taylor, go get him. And Londoners agreed. Over the years, Taylor wrote prodigiously and voluminously, and his pamphlets and books were gobbled up at a rate roughly commensurate with his betters, Shakespeare and Johnson. His poetry was never much to swoon over, but his satires and essays and epigrams were often pretty swell. And he forged new ways of writing, too. He's one of the first English-language writers to work in palindrome, with a passage in the sculler reading, very cleverly, "'Lewd did I live, and evil did I dwell.'" The ampersand is a bit of a give, but pretty good for a first attempt. He also helped pioneer the genre of travel writing. 
1618, he announced he would walk from London to Scotland and write about his experience. Moreover, he said he would take no money with him, and he wouldn't beg or take shelter at the almshouse. Instead, he would rely entirely upon his charm and the graces of those his charm touched to keep him fed and homed on his journey. If he couldn't make friends, he would starve on the road. Then you'll probably starve on the road, scoffed London's high society. All right, let's make a bet then, retorted Taylor. He extracted promises from his doubters that if he did make it to Scotland and back on his terms, they would have to buy his book. In 1618, he published Penniless Pilgrimage, which had more than 1,600 advance purchases before it ever went to print. He became arguably the first war correspondent, traveling to Bohemia to report upon the Thirty Years' War for the interested English back home. He created more stunts that drove a larger and larger readership. At one point, he announced he would sail down the Thames in a boat built entirely of brown paper, and all of London came out to watch him try. The paper, predictably, fell apart immediately, but Taylor had lined his craft with pig bladders so that when he came round the bend, everyone could get a good laugh watching him float down the river in only the bobbing top of a broken boat, the river reaching up to his armpits. He had become one of the most popular and sought-after figures in London. But John Taylor's initial observation that he'd never be able to succeed financially as a writer from his station sadly remained true. All of his literary success wasn't enough to let him quit his waterman job. It did, however, help him advance in the waterman world. With his reputation as a sober, clever, and hardworking professional, he was named a waterman to the king, and from that began to call himself the king's water poet. With his platform and this new connection to royalty, he became the clerk of the Waterman Guild. And when spring-stabilized carriages came to London in the 1620s, his two careers merged. He published two separate satires, attacking what he called the Hellcart Coaches and calling for a return to better, more waterborne days. John Taylor was great. <laughs> A working-class hero who, through grit, determination, talent, and innovation, transformed himself into a popular celebrity. No, he never hit the artistic heights of John Donne, but he created a hell of a legacy. And it was legacy he was most interested in. Taylor lived a long, long life, long enough to see most of his heroes pass on. In his 1620 book, The Praise of Hempseed, in which he also wrote up his rollicking description of the paper boat ride, he turned his poetic eye towards immortality and how it is best achieved through the very paper he rode the Thames with. Because it is the writers and poets, the philosophers and historians, the authors and essayists who live on forever. Whoever went beyond our famous king, whose art throughout the spacious world doth ring, such a divine and poet that each state admires him who they cannot imitate, he wrote. And then he became the first person to eulogize in print the great Elizabethan writers who had recently passed. In paper, many a poet now survives, or else their lines had perished with their lives. Old Chaucer, Gower, and Sir Thomas More, Sir Philip Sidney, who the laurel wore. Spence and Shakespeare did in art excel. Sir Edward Dyer, Green, Nash, Daniel, Sylvester Beaumont, Sir John Harrington, forgetfulnesses their works would overrun, but that in paper they immortally doth live in spite of death and cannot die. 
The praise of Hempseed lives on too, because it is the first thing published other than his death certificate which marks that Shakespeare had passed beyond this mortal coil. Which, I hope you'll agree, is all very cool, but what the hell does it have to do with the war on Christmas? Great question. The first half of the 1600s were pretty good for John Taylor, but they weren't quite as smooth sailing for English politics. Queen Elizabeth had died in 1603, a decade before Taylor triumphantly entered the world of letters, and she was succeeded by King James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England and promptly began trying to unify the Isles of Britain and Ireland under one government. His son, Charles I, carried on that work when he ascended to the throne in 1625. Lots of folks were suspicious of this effort, as in pretty much everybody. The Irish Catholics thought Anglican England was too Protestant, whereas the Scotch Protestants thought it was too Catholic, and the English Parliament thought the whole thing might be a smoke cloud under which the king would strip them of power, and they were probably right. The relationship between King Charles and Parliament is the stuff of nightmares. In 1627, Parliament impeached his favorite and his father's former lover, the Duke of Buckingham, and Charles responded by dissolving the entire body. But, now unable to raise taxes, he created a new parliament in 1628, which he thought would be more properly subservient to him. He was quite wrong. One of the members of this new parliament was a bloke named Oliver Cromwell, and together with his mates, they forced King Charles to sign the Petition of Right, which gave taxation power back to parliament and granted protections for the rights and liberties of the British people. With no other choice, Charles agreed to give over a ton of new power to parliament. Then, immediately, he was like, Okay, Parliament, good work. Take a break, you've earned it. I will call you back into session. Uh, how about never? He didn't disband Parliament this time. He just sidelined them. He didn't let Parliament do anything at all between 1629 and 1640. Depending on whose side you're on, this period became known as the personal rule of Charles I, or else the 11 years tyranny. During the tyranny, Charles went about hammering the Church of England into shape, formalizing a form of Anglicanism that theologically rejected Calvinist ideas and which, ceremonially, looked a lot more Catholic. More cathedrals, more pomp, and more power centralized at the head of the church, which was, hey, look at that, King Charles! The Puritans grumbled about these changes, but that was easy enough to handle. Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, simply had them arrested, beaten, and publicly tortured whenever they threatened to say mum. New Anglicanism was going so well in England that after a few years, Charles decided to bring it to Scotland, too. He had the New English Book of Common Prayer brought to the north, where the Scotch Presbyterians were like, Wow! Thank you! We got you a present, too! Mayhem! Violent riots broke out in Edinburgh, rejecting Anglicanism. They spread throughout the countryside and eventually coalesced into a coherent fighting force. The majority of Scottish nobles got together and signed a national covenant opposing the church reforms. So Charles put together an army and began marching north to put down the rebellion. He met the Scottish forces at Berwick and battled them to a muddy draw. Then he signed a treaty making peace with Scotland, which he promptly tore up. He marched his army back north, where this time it was roundly defeated, giving Scotland new territory all the way south to Newcastle. Without a whole lot more money, Charles couldn't defeat the Scottish, but he couldn't raise that kind of cash without the help of, ah shit, Parliament. 
Well, 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 said Parliament. Look who's come crawling back. Hey, Parliament, you look fabulous. How long has it been? A decade? More? Charles did everything he could to butter them up, but the negotiations were grueling. Before they'd agree to raise funds for Charles's war, Parliament demanded they settle a whole host of old grievances, dating back to before the last Parliament Charles had offended. Even then, the majority leader, John Pym, said he'd only approve the tax hike under the condition that the money not be used to fight Scotland, which was the whole goddamn point in the first place. And you know what? Fuck this, said Charles. You can all go home. He disbanded the first parliament for 11 years after just three weeks. Charles decided he'd go it alone and again raised an army to fight off Scotland. And again, he got his ass kicked. This time, the Scottish army took over even more of England, all the way down through Northumberland and Durham. It was worse than that, though, because in spite of all the fighting, King Charles of England was also still King Charles of Scotland, which meant he had to pay for the army that was occupying his country. It was essentially blackmail. If Charles failed to cough up money for the soldiers in the north, well... That's a nice city of York you got there. Be a shame if something happened to it, you know? And that same Scottish army that was bleeding him dry had also decimated the English army he needed to protect himself from the Scottish one. All the money he needed to raise another was instead being funneled to his enemies. With no other choice, King Charles again called Parliament to session. And however hostile he'd found them before, he was about to see a whole new level of antagonism. This time, Parliament refused to disband. They became known as the Long Parliament, and they kept on meeting for the next 20 years. They quickly passed a law requiring Parliament to meet at least once every three years, with or without the summons of the king. They passed a law forbidding Charles from dissolving the body. They stripped Charles of the ability to raise taxes. They took direct control of his ministers. Charles had brought back Parliament because his troubles in Scotland were so great, he felt he had no other option. But very soon, Parliament was looking like a much larger problem even than an occupying army could be. Not only was the Long Parliament proving politically disastrous for Charles, but it was a religious fiasco, too. The Puritans, who he'd violently suppressed a few years back with the help of Archbishop William Laud, were gaining control over the government, and they soon arrested William Laud and threatened to execute him. Fearing that Parliament was nearing all-out civil war against the Crown, Charles tried to have the ringleaders arrested, marching into the House of Commons with 400 soldiers behind him, only to find that the five members had run off. Ironically, this attempt to avert civil war fomented civil war. When his arrest failed, he quickly turned to his family and closest loyalists and was like, hey, London <laughs> sucks this time of year, right? Why don't we all head to Oxford and hang out there until I don't get murdered? I mean, until summertime. While the war wasn't officially on yet, the battle lines were hardening. The king had abandoned London, for Christ's sake, leaving the seat of power in the hands of some increasingly agitated Puritans in Parliament who peppered the displaced monarch with demands which Charles refused. 
Over the winter, spring, and summer, lords, cities, towns, and counties began declaring sides, arranging themselves for the coming bloodshed. Even individuals, gentrymen, and artists felt the need to make clear whether they were with Charles's cavaliers or Parliament's roundheads. And one of the individuals who felt that need was John Taylor, water poet. John Taylor was now in his 60s, and no, no one exactly cared where his loyalty fell, but it's still an interesting question for us. Because Taylor's religious and political views were fairly heterodox. On the one hand, he was sympathetic to some Puritan ideas, but he was also virulently anti-Catholic, which Charles was seen as sympathetic to. On the other hand, he was officially a king's waterman, and in his own unofficial estimation, the official water poet of the king. On the other, other hand, Taylor was a working man, a friend to the common people, and Charles was seen, understandably, as quite not. John Taylor needed a tiebreaker, and he had one. He recognized that the Puritans weren't just an enemy to the crown and Catholicism. They were also enemies of frivolity, of gaiety, of mirth, of fun. They were miserable misers who saw sin in every smile, Taylor didn't like that one bit. In particular, he thought that they had in their sights his favorite holiday, and he wouldn't stand for that. Officially, they might be at war with King Charles, but John Taylor recognized the real battle lines. The Puritans were waging a war on Christmas. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When I crawl out of my closet to reluctantly socialize at holiday parties, I'm totally overwhelmed. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or becoming a parent. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. I'm a big believer in therapy, and I think the flexibility of BetterHelp makes it a great way to get the help you might otherwise struggle to find. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash theconstant. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash The Constant. At first, there was no Christmas. Whether early Christians marked any holidays at all is debatable. Paul's epistle to the Galatians suggests early Jewish followers of Jesus maintained at least some of the Jewish holidays, and his letter to the Romans more intriguingly insinuates that some of them kept holy days left over from Roman mythology. 
By the second century, there was fierce debate among Christians as to whether and when the resurrection should be celebrated. Eventually, Pasha was established as the holiday around the resurrection, falling the Sunday nearest to the Jewish Passover. And not long after that, the list of holy days began to grow, mainly around the deaths of Christian martyrs. Many of these holidays, including Pasha itself, fell around already existent pagan celebrations, and as early as the 5th century, critics, historians, and observers were all suggesting that maybe Christian holidays weren't actually Christian at all, but attempts to win over discontented converts who didn't like giving up their festivals and fun times. But there was still no Christmas. And just how and why Christmas came to be celebrated, and why it came to be celebrated on December 25th, is terrifically difficult to pin down. Christians in the Eastern Roman Empire had a holiday all the way back in 200 AD, but they celebrated it on January 6th, and it wasn't about the birth of Jesus, but about his baptism. In 336 AD, some Roman Christians celebrated the birth of Christ on December 25th, and they did that for a few more years, but it wasn't official and it wasn't so much a holiday as it was a fuck you to other rival Gnostic Christians who didn't believe Jesus had been flesh and blood. Why they had chosen December 25th is a spectacularly good question without a very easy answer. Christians at the time had already been celebrating the Annunciation when Gabriel came to Mary and told her she was pregnant on March 25th. And it's possible that they just counted forward nine months and said, ah, must be then, then. It is also true that in the Roman calendar, December 25th was the winter solstice, and plenty of early Christian apologists thought that this was significant. St. Augustine explained this must be Jesus' birthday because, quote, Hence it is that he was born on the day which is the shortest in our earthly reckoning, and from which subsequent days begin to increase in length. He, therefore, who bent low and lifted us up, chose the shortest day, yet the one whence light begins to increase. Of course, just like so many of the other holidays Christianity was beginning to assemble, plenty of people also noted that it was kind of suspicious that this one just so happened to coincide with a bunch of popular old pagan rituals. December 25th was the Roman celebration of the sun god Helios, and the mystery cult of Mithras celebrated his birthday then too. The run-up to Christmas, Advent, coincides conspicuously with the festival of Saturnalia. And the whole holiday season didn't really become popular until the Holy Roman Catholic Church began bumping up against heathens further north, who celebrated even more pagany holidays, like Mondranet and Yuletide. Now, none of these theories need be mutually exclusive. That many different cultures found the solstice holy is attested to by the very obvious fact that, um, many different cultures found the solstice holy. Not only was it the shortest day of the year, but the shortest day of the year took place at a very particular moment. Until very recently, most people were in the business of growing food. That is all that they did. But by the solstice, that job was well and done for the year. Everything had been harvested, and there was little left to do but sit around in the cold. Well, sit around in the cold and slaughter their livestock, since they couldn't afford to feed all their animals through the winter and it was the one time of year you could butcher them without the meat all going bad. Which made December about the only time of year when most people got to eat meat. Not only that, but all of the excess grain they'd harvested a few months back? Wouldn't you know it, it's ready for consumption now, as beer. So, 
Where does Christmas really come from? Is it just the assimilation of pagan holidays, or does it hold some deeper Christian meaning? Does anyone even know what Christmas is all about? Oh sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Getting blind drunk and fucking in the streets. Whether Christmas directly came from Saturnalia and Yule and Sol Invictus or not, once it was an official holiday, it rolled around the world picking up ideas and images and traditions from any and every godless festival it ran over. And most of those ideas and images and traditions were nasty. The 12 Days of Christmas, originally formed to bridge the gap between those who thought it should be celebrated on the 25th and those who thought it should fall on January 6th, was a riotous, drunken, debauched period, wherein peasants would wake every day and immediately take to drink, stumbling out onto the streets and causing all manner of chaos. If you were landed or rich or titled, you might hold up indoors because the crowds of drunken revelers had a habit of turning to class violence. The best way to predict when they were about to make trouble was if the mob started caroling. Bands of carolers or wassailers would go from door to door singing songs. How sweet! And then, sometimes, they'd kick in the door and barge into the houses, demanding to be given food and booze. If they didn't get their figgy puddings, they'd start breaking shit. But carolers weren't the only potentially unwanted visitors you might expect at Christmas time. There were also the mummers. Mumming, in its most anodyne definition, means to make diversion in disguise. And the most key factor of the mummers was that they wore masks. But they also dressed up. Sometimes people dressed as animals, but usually the mummers took to drag. Men dressed as women, women dressed as men, all masked, wandered into neighbors' houses, and then... Uh, fucked. Women dressed as men fucking women, men dressed as women fucking men, all masked, all drunk, all fat with meat. It was eyes wide shut for the birth of our Lord. On several occasions, and in several different countries, mumming had to be outlawed. Not because of the casual sex and breakdown of gender norms, though, yes, plenty of people bemoaned that stuff, but because the masked mummers murdered people. Outside in the street, an older and just as raucous tradition was honored. The Lord of Misrule, otherwise known as the Maester of Merry Disports. This one probably goes all the way back to the very earliest Christmas celebrations, and to Saturnalia, with which those Christmas celebrations overlapped, but it became an especially notable feature in Tudor England. Each Christmas, a lower-class man would be chosen by lots to serve as a sort of mock king of Christmas. Sometimes a lady of misrule would also be chosen. These monarchs would then rule, or misrule, over the household, or the neighborhood, or the village, or the city, or wherever, in whatever body way they pleased. Similarly, celebrants would sometimes elect a false bishop, or even a false pope, to handle the funhouse mirror religious world of Christmas. Sometimes these fake priests were children, boy bishops, so-called, who would simply make a mockery of the church in relatively clean, if sacrilegious, fun. Other times, an adult would be given the collar, and this seems mostly to have been an excuse for a random drunk to marry people on the streets, who would then, ah, you know what they'd do, like mistletoe, but with genitals. 
the Puritans were suspicious of all holidays. There were none mentioned in the Bible, after all, and they suspected they were just pagan or Catholic corruption. But Christmas? The all-singing, all-dancing, smash-and-grab, suck-and-fuck festival of drunken carnal excess and misrule? Man, oh man, did they not care for Christmas. And John Taylor, water poet to the king, knew it. In 1642, while Charles was at Oxford and Oliver Cromwell in London, each shoring up their allies and preparing for war, both the Parliament and its army refused to so much as take the day off. Taylor could smell what was coming if the Roundheads won the day. Sure, King Charles was a bit of a tyrant. He seemed utterly indifferent to the pleas of the common man and wanted to tax all of England into oblivion. But Oliver Cromwell wanted to ban Christmas. Taylor published A Tale in a Tub or a Tub Lecture, a satirical take on a Puritan sermon, delivered by a comically stodgy brownist preacher of his own invention whom he called My Heel Mensoul. My Heel Mensoul gave a long and ridiculous bit of serpentine and circular apologetics around the book of Daniel chapter 14 verse 2, which reads, Now the Babylonians had an idol called Bel. Taylor's fictional Puritan preacher repeats the phrase over and over, breaking it down word by word until he concludes that the true meaning of the verse is that Babylon is here, the worship is happening now, and it takes the form of Christmas. The tub lecture was supposed to have been given on Christmas Day the year prior, 1641, and My Heel Mensel tells the audience straight out that he is not there to give a Christmas sermon. Do not conceive of me to be so superstitious as to make any conscience of this day because the church hath ordained it. No, God forbid I should be so profane. Rather, it is a detestation of their blindness that have brought me hither this day to enlighten you. I give you to understand that the very name of Christmas is idolatrous and profane, and so, verily, are the whole twelve days of Christmas wherein the wicked make daily sacrifices to riot and sensuality. The message was clear. If you let these people take over, they will steal away your Christmas. And John Taylor was right. The next December 25th, with Cromwell and his roundheads in charge of London, the shops were left open for the day, and the churches closed up. Parliament was in session, and Christmas nowhere to be found. John Taylor described it in his Complaint of Christmas, in which he took on the character of Father Christmas, coming to visit England only to find himself unwanted and unremembered. All the liberty and harmless sports, with the merry gambles, dances, and fiscal, by which the toiling plowswain and laborer were wont to be recreated and their spirits and hopes revived for a whole twelve month, are now extinct and put out of use in such a fashion as if they had never been. Thus are the merry lords of misrule suppressed by the mad lords of bad rule at Westminster. From there, things only got worse. In 1644, Parliament ordered a fast instead of a feast, urging members to reflect on their sins and the sins of their ancestors, with one sin in particular. Quote, it may call to remembrance our sins and the sins of our forefathers, who have turned this feast pretending to the memory of Christ, into an extreme forgetfulness of him by giving liberty to carnal and sensual delights. 
1645, Oliver Cromwell and Thomas Fairbanks formed the New Model Army, which quickly crushed the Royalist Cavaliers at the Battle of Naseby and took King Charles prisoner. A Royalist ballad solemnly marked the defeat. To conclude, I'll tell you news that's right. Christmas was killed at Naseby fight. Now fully in charge for real, the Puritans released a new prayer book, a replacement for the Book of Common Prayer which Charles had sent to Scotland, kicking the whole mess off in the first place. In their book, called The New Directory for the Worship of God, the word Christmas didn't appear at all. It had simply vanished. John Taylor continued to write tracts about Christmas, urging the people to rise up in defense of their holiday. And the people did. In 1643, when the Puritans of London tried to open their shops for the day, some of their apprentices rebelled, rioted, and forced them to shut down. In 1646, a group of would-be revelers in Bury St. Edmunds menaced shop owners for opening on Christmas. The town magistrates were called in to put them down, but the young men fought back and were only defeated with great violence. After that, Parliament officially passed an ordinance making the celebration of Christmas illegal. But the people, who were otherwise kind of sanguine about the new national leadership, wouldn't stand for this. Riots broke out on Christmas Day in 1647 all around the country, the worst of which took place in Canterbury, where pro-Christmas rioters began by breaking windows at open shops before setting their sights a little higher. They charged the mayor's house, seized it, and took full control of the city. In May, the Lords of Misrule in Canterbury and surrounding Kent rose up in defense of the king, which marked the beginning of the Second English Civil War, which, for a very brief moment, looked like it might give Cromwell some serious trouble. But Fairfax and Cromwell pretty quickly put down the Kent Christmasers and then did likewise to similar revolts throughout the south of England and Wales. Sympathetic Scots invaded to support them all, but they too were eventually defeated, and at the end of the Second War, Cromwell and Fairfax decided to put a final period on the royalist sentiment and execute King Charles. It wasn't just the end of Charles and of the monarchy, it was the end of Christmas. For real and true, there were no more riots, no more fights, no more attempts to revive the spirit of the season. In 1652, John Taylor wrote his final Christmas pamphlet, The Vindication of Christmas, in which he painted a nostalgic portrait of the holiday still secretly kept, he said, among the country people of Devon. It wasn't true. He died the next year, on December 5th, a day before St. Nicholas Day. Christmas was gone. Officially outlawed throughout the Interregnum, it only came to be legal again with the restoration of the English crown in 1660. And it soon regained a lot of its bacchanalian glory. There was all the more cause to celebrate, after all. The Puritans had been removed from power, put down, never to be heard from again. In England, at least. In the American colonies the Puritans still ruled the roost. And they were a breed that was even less fun than their Cromwellian counterparts. They were Brownists, like Taylor's fictional lecturing preacher. And from the very moment they landed in the New World, they celebrated their religious freedom by refusing to celebrate Christmas. On the very first Christmas at Plymouth Colony, the Pilgrims spent their day building the colony's first house. 
As more colonists arrived, the pilgrims were consternated to find that some of them liked Christmas. They began calling the holiday Fool's Tide to shame them. And when that didn't work, they just straight up outlawed it. In 1659, a decade after King Charles's beheading, the great court of the Massachusetts Bay Colony named it a criminal offense to celebrate. Whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, the law said, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, shall be subject to a fine of five shillings. The Massachusetts Christmas ban outlived England's by 20 years, and even when it was eventually repealed, the holiday mostly went unmarked. Many New Englanders remained outright hostile to the celebration. When the British governor of Massachusetts, Edmund Andros, attended a Christmas Day church service in 1686 Boston, he had to be surrounded by guards to protect him and discourage protest. Not every colony hated Christmas like Massachusetts did. Nobody does bitter like Massachusetts, after all. Outside of the middle colonies where Calvinists held sway, there was more Christmas to be had. In the South, the festival looked about as raucous and socially radical as it ever had in England. The same cross-dressing, the same heavy drinking. Most houses opened their doors to all comers, and there were even occasional bouts of misrule between masters and slaves. Christmas was the one time of year when slave owners loosened their horrifying grip a bit. Enslaved people were let off of work, allowed to drink, allowed to leave the property. Sometimes they even joined their masters in the celebration. And I don't want to run the risk of romanticizing that any further, so I will just say that Frederick Douglass wrote of all this that he found it all to be a joke, a mockery, a pantomime of freedom for the entertainment of whites in which they relished watching their property get overdrunk because of their malnourishment. Whether Massachusetts or Virginia, though, Christmas was not an official holiday, and that remained through after the Revolution. In fact, whatever Christmas cheer there had been in the colonies was diminished with their separation from the mother country, since Christmas was seen as unfashionably British. Between 1780 and 1855, Congress remained in session over the Christmas holidays. So wait, 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 wait. If Christmas up through the 1800s was either not observed at all or else a hedonistic midwinter Mardi Gras, then where, when, and why did the Christmas you and I know come about? That's another tough one to answer. Part of the transition from Greco-Roman clusterfuck to Hallmark Channel Shopathon was probably due to the growth of cities. After all, back when John Taylor was fighting for Christmas in the 1600s, there were 200,000 people in London. By the turn of the 19th century, it was more like one million. And a holiday centered around wearing masks, breaking and entering, and eating and screwing your way through the neighborhood is just different in a small town, isn't it? Like, when you knew everybody in the area, a little gender-bending casual sex and vandalism could be a good time. A real good time, if you ask me. But when the pool of participants grows into the hundreds, that's not an orgy anymore. It's just a mob. People started to get worried about Christmas time. Not Puritan worried, not please don't turn me Catholic guys worried, more like, wow, an awful lot of you have knives worried. At the turn of the 1800s, New York City was still pretty small, but it was growing fast and filling up with people from different places and cultures who didn't know or trust one another. That meant that nearly every Christmas descended into violence and mayhem. In 1806, a nativist mob attacked a congregation of Catholics who were leaving Christmas Eve Mass. 
the Irish Catholics fought back, and Christmas Day became a bloody battle that left at least one city watchman dead. But it was the English Christmas revelers who were usually responsible for the chaos. They formed impromptu parades that carried through the whole night of Christmas Eve and into Christmas morning, breaking things, stealing, burglarizing, and getting into fights. Sometimes they turned into race riots. A few sources I've seen suggest that a particularly rowdy Christmas parade in 1828 led to the first organized police force in the city's history. That doesn't seem quite literally true, but it is correct that the mobs were so dangerous and out of control that groups of private security were hired and positioned around town. Back in John Taylor's day, celebrations of misrule, though rowdy and potentially threatening, were ultimately frivolous fun. The lower class got to burn off some steam against the higher-ups, who earned goodwill and proved they weren't so bad by going along with the shenanigans, not to mention having drinks and pudding at the ready. But by the 1800s, the social order was far less systematically stratified. The rich were still the rich and the poor were still the poor, but the relationship between the two was less direct and predictable. Workers in 19th century urban cities no longer got the winter months off, no longer experienced a post-harvest lull. They had to work, 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 or else be fired when the rivers iced up and their jobs faded for the year. So, when mobs of people came down on wealthy houses, it was no longer about joshing with the boss. It was closer to open-class warfare. The upper crust in America and England began to simply ignore Christmas. They didn't try to ban it like the Puritans had. They just stayed inside and tried to keep quiet, worrying that the Calithumpian parades would wander their way. And it's around here that people start thinking they need a new kind of Christmas. Which they mostly erroneously believed to be the old kind of Christmas. A myth of the past. A callback to a never-existent age when the holiday brought all people, rich and poor, black and white, Protestant and Catholic, together in community and charity. So, they invented that. The number of people responsible for transforming Christmas from an out-of-control orgy of sex and violence to the happy holiday, see what I did there, we know today is surprisingly small, and you're already familiar with at least a few of them. The efforts can be very reductively tracked back to John Pintard in America and Thomas Hervey in Britain. Hervey was a Scottish poet and critic, editor of the Athenaeum Literary Magazine, and a firm believer in the Christmas of the past, which never existed. He published an illustrated book called The Book of Christmas, which described in invented detail the old and nice ways people used to celebrate the holiday. Pintard's angle was somewhat similar. He was a merchant and a philanthropist, one of the well-to-do of New York City. And while he feared the Christmas mobs, he also sympathized with their plight. These people, he figured, had nowhere to express themselves, to put their energies. The Puritan opposition of Christmas had left them with no way to celebrate the season than through explosions of rage. What they needed was a more tender conduit for their feelings. He single-handedly brought St. Nicholas to America, urging him to be named the patron saint of the city and published a broadside of old St. Nick giving out presents to children. Now, there were two men especially sympathetic to Pintard's ideas, and they also did a whole lot more to champion them. One was Washington Irving, the author best known for The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. 
We've already had cause to talk about Irving before because he's chiefly responsible for the myth of Christopher Columbus discovering America and believing the world was round against a mythical society of flat earthers and blah, 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 blah. Irving, even more than Pinterest, believed that what America needed was new myths, new traditions, things the American people could share and be unified by. And Christmas seemed like just the trick. Irving cemented St. Nicholas as not just a patron of giving, but of America and New York itself. He wrote a story about a Dutch scouting party being shipwrecked off the East Coast, only to be visited by a flying St. Nicholas who showed them the way to Manhattan and told them to build a city there. But Christmas wasn't just a Dutch-American tradition, said Irving. He also wrote about how the English used to celebrate Christmas before the Puritans banned it and the rowdy bands of roustabouts turned it into a night of violence. The English Christmas Washington Irving described never actually existed, of course. He pulled it straight out of his imagination, but it quickly made its way into the imaginations of others who began to think of Christmas as a time when people stayed indoors with their families, singing by the fireside, decorating their homes, and giving one another presents. Then came Clement Clark Moore, a professor of Hebrew at the Episcopal General Theological Seminary in New York City. Moore was a fuddy-duddy, a pedant and ivory tower elitist, who made most of his money buying and selling real estate in between his academic forays. There was nothing about him that should have made him important to the story of Christmas, except that one evening in 1822, while riding in his sleigh to do some holiday shopping, he had an idea for a poem. A poem that changed Christmas forever. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." A Visit from St. Nicholas was published anonymously on December 23, 1823, and quickly became the most popular American poem ever written. It also invented a whole bunch of new Christmas traditions. Never before had St. Nicholas been an agent of Christmas. His holiday had always been his saint's day, December 6th. But now he came on Christmas Eve of all times, a date no one had given much attention before to slip down the chimney and give away presents from his sleigh powered by flying reindeer. Moore's vision of Santa Claus was clearly influenced by Pinterest and especially by Washington Irving, but it was also his own, and it proved indelible. Meanwhile, back in England, there was some guy named Charles Dickens. Thomas Hervey had written his book of Christmas while working with Dickens as editor on the Pickwick Papers, and they shared a loving nostalgia for the Christmas that never was. That protean celebration began to take form for Dickens through reading Washington Irving. The two became fast friends, writing letters back and forth, complimenting one another. Until Dickens actually showed up in America and the two met face to face, at which point Irving realized, as most who met him did, that Dickens was an insufferable drunken prig. But Irving's vision of Christmas in Dickens' own country was exactly what Dickens wished to be true. A radical social reformer, he deludedly melded the old ways of misrule, of the rich giving to the poor or else, and married it to the homey hearth and gentle song Irving had concocted. Which gets us to... Marley was dead to begin with. 
There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. A Christmas Carol is the most famous piece of the most famous author of the last 200 years. And while the reignition of the holiday was already well on its way after Irving and Hervey, it's Dickens who really made it burn. Of course, this is all heavily abridged. For instance, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had plenty to do with things as well. When Albert came to Windsor, he brought the Christmas tree, which immediately spread across England and Canada and then to America and then to everywhere. And while Moore, Pinterd, and Irving had plenty to do with the birth of Santa Claus, it took another generation to transform him from a slender man dressed all in black with a pointy hat to the roly-poly fat man with the stocking cap we know. That was the result of a political cartoon by Thomas Nast of Santa visiting Union soldiers during the Civil War and giving them presents, like a little Confederate President Jefferson Davis doll with a noose around his neck. Ooh, I want one! Santa's outfit has changed since then, obviously. His coat is blue and decked with five pointed stars. But take that off and you'll see the rest of his clothes are quite familiar. Red and white, the stars and stripes of the American flag. It took barely any time at all for Dickens's and Irving's Christmas to become everybody's Christmas, to such an extent that most people seemed to forget that there had ever been anything else before Santa and reindeers and crass commercialism. Sure, there were some vestiges of the blue Christmas of yesteryear. What is up with the mistletoe kiss, huh? But aside from the hum of Christians wondering what trees and gifts and an old man in your chimney have to do with the birth of the Christ child, the new Christmas was a hit, universally beloved, celebrated, and never warred upon again, until Bill O'Reilly reared his horse face in December of 2004, right? No, what, are you kidding me? It may seem like a weird reversal that the people allegedly fighting for Christmas today are more like the puritanical sops who fought against it historically, but you can actually watch the battle lines shift. Almost from the very moment people started giving Christmas cards in the 1840s, you see periodic grumblings of people wondering why they sometimes say Happy Holidays. But it was in 1912 that the new war on the new Christmas started going hot. It began with the Working Girls Vacation Fund, which a group of Manhattan shop clerks had formed the year previous. The purpose of the fund was right there on the tin. All members would put a little of their earnings in each week so that they could pool their money together to get out of town and have a little time for themselves away from their jobs. But the plan soon hit a snag. Christmas. See, in yet another misruly flip-flop of the holiday spirit, it had become customary and in some stores required for shop girls to give gifts to their bosses. Expensive gifts, too. Two weeks' wages. Instead of receiving holiday bonuses or presents from their managers for all the hard work, the shop girls were expected to pay scuttage to their industrial feudal masters. And the Working Girls Vacation Fund was having none of it they formed a second group called the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving, or 
Spug. The society organized Spug brigades. Shop girls wearing pins boldly emblazoned Spug and lobbied for the end of powerful men taking money from working women. They banded together in groups of five or more to tell their bosses they wouldn't be giving them gifts this year. The Spugs were, for a brief moment, incredibly popular, with chapters sprouting up across the country and tens of thousands of members, including, after hollering about it in the New York Times, President Teddy Roosevelt, the first and only honorary male Spug. And the Spugs had the surprising markings of a real social reform movement. Soon, their sights were set to bigger things, like an eight-hour workday. But at the same time, the Spugs' enemies began to find their anti-purchase purchase. These girls were misers, cheapskates. They weren't the gentlemen collecting donations at the beginning of A Christmas Carol, and they weren't poor Tiny Tim either. The Spugs were the real Scrooges of the season. In response, the Spugs changed their name. No longer would they be the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving, but the Society for the Promotion of Useful Giving. With their message diluted, their name turned into an empty marketing slogan, and World War I nipping at the nation's heels, the Spugs faded away, having seemingly reached a compromise with management. No more expensive gifts. Instead, they'd resuscitate an older tradition from back in the 1840s, Christmas cards. Some of which, against the great American God Almighty himself, said, Happy Holidays. It is in the 1920s that this first came, in print at least, to be seen as a war on Christmas. The war, later agreed upon by the John Birch Society, then Peggy Noonan, and finally Bill Killing Christmas O'Reilly himself, was first identified by none other than the inventor of the Model T, Henry Ford. In his newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, Ford lamented, Last Christmas, most people had a hard time finding Christmas cards that indicated in any way that Christmas commemorated someone's birth. And who, according to this war's first modern general of General Motors, was waging this war against Christmas? I mean, we're talking about Henry Ford here, so you can take a guess. Not liberals and secularists, exactly, but Jews. The first salvo in the modern war on Christmas came from the Dearborn Independence long-running series entitled The International Jew, The World's Problem in which Ford introduced the phony conspiracy forgery The Protocols of the Elders of Zion to America and then to Germany, where they were taken up by a sprightly fellow named Adolf Hitler. The plot to destroy Christendom and capitalism and replace them with Jewish communism had many points, plans, and plots, and one of them, wrote Ford, was this war on Christmas. In fact, if you wanted to understand the whole Zionist conspiracy, you didn't have to look any further. People sometimes ask why 3 million Jews can control the affairs of 100 million Americans, the article read, in the same way that 10 Jewish students can abolish the mention of Christmas and Easter out of schools containing 3,000 Christian pupils. Again, pretty familiar rhetoric. So what does all this history tell us about the 18-year-old war on Christmas we're in today? 
There isn't much of a relationship to be drawn between John Taylor and Bill O'Reilly. If anything, O'Reilly and Jones and Carlson seem more akin to the puritanical Christmas banners than to the freedom fighters. And while it's easy to draw a line between the pro-Christmas anti-labor pundits who stomped on Spug, or to write the parallel between a secret conspiracy waged by Jews to a secret conspiracy waged by college-educated liberals, I think we should be careful about making those connections too explicit. I don't think there's a direct line of custody between Henry Ford and O'Reilly. So while the similarities are worth noticing and being cautious about, we should probably also be cautious about reading too much into them. I think that the strongest historical analogy between today's hysterias over missing Christmas trees and cashiers saying happy holidays actually goes back to Washington Irving and John Pintard. Historically, Christmas has been about the common people getting a break, a time when they were able to lay down their burdens, cease their endless toiling, and let loose a little bit. To shake free of hierarchical constraints and petty social morality. It was a time when you could tell your boss to stuff it, like you'd wanted to all year, and maybe release some of that sexual tension between you and your neighbor's wife, or even better, between you and your neighbor. Now, there is good reason why many of these traditions have been subdued or extinguished, in a world packed thick with strangers particularly. But while the newly invented Christmas traditions are beloved, maybe they leave a certain need unmet. Maybe you can't burn off your frustrations with a Target shopping spree. Maybe a new pair of socks isn't the same thing as a handy in the pantry. Maybe we still need a place to put all that winter angst and dread. For some people, that means circling the wagons and sharing in a bit of community outrage about their invisible enemies. And for others, like me, it means laughing at those people for their paranoid ramblings. I think that might be it. And so while I'm going to keep laughing whenever Steve Ducey or Alex Jones goes on a tear about CVS's greeting card stock being only 70% Christmas related, I'll also try to remember where they're really coming from that when they scream about how they're not allowed to celebrate Christmas anymore, what they really mean, deep in their heart of hearts, is that they'd like to be free to go to drag shows, like God intended for them to do at Christmas. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, voice acting by Heather Chrysler. In honor of the contrived capitalist spirit, I'd like to remind you that financial supporters of this show get access to new episodes early and ad-free, as well as monthly bonus stories. It's the perfect gift for a very select kind of person, and maybe you're listening with one of them right now. If so, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up while there's still time. There probably isn't time to get merch delivered before the holiday, but you might be able to start a new family tradition of giving Constant t-shirts for Epiphany if you act now. Visit ConstantPodcast.com to find our merch store and give the gift of podcast handbags to the tiny Tim in your life. Normally, at this point, I tell you where to find our social media handles, but I'm busy dismantling them because social media is a disease. You can still find us on Instagram, though. And that is it for us today. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, birthplace of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, this has been The Constant. And that is it for today. Okay, I don't know. Whatever it is, it's not right on the teleprompter. I don't know what that is. I've never seen that. 
Okay, but I can't read it. There's no there's no words on it. There's no words there to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out. What is I don't know what that means. To play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? All right, go. Go. That's tomorrow and this is That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today, and we'll leave you with a, uh, I can't do it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live! Fuck it! We'll do it live! I can, I'll write it, and we'll do it live! Fucking thing sucks! And that is it for us today. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, birthplace of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, this has been The Constant. a fucking nightmare oh compressor mike oh how tested your limits are today